This week on the Twin Geek Cast, a couple of our finest wise guys look at Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. We've also got a new indie film called The Avengers, and we're looking at Sonic the Hedgehog? Movies and friendship. Those are messages. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Now go home and get your fucking shine box. All right, I'm recording. Um, just, okay, here we go. All right, uh, welcome back to another week. Uh, let's start off by apologizing for the beginning of our last week's podcast, where we bullshitted about Game of Thrones for a while. We regret that, and we'll never do it again. This week, we're back again to cover the latest Game of the Rings episode from a... I hear it's real dark this week. <laughs> All right, we're not getting into it this time again. I just said that. I know you have something else on your mind, Calvin, you want to talk about. I always have something else on my mind, but especially this week, we have a new Sonic the Hedgehog trailer. Yes, you, you pick the weirdest things to obsess about, but, you know, you, you do you, man. I feel like nobody else is standing up for it, and I, I have to make my mark. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog was my first video game uh, growing up, mostly in the 90s. So I feel like I have a high attachment to the brand. Yeah, oh, I think that's certainly the case for a lot of people. You're either a, a Sega person or a Nintendo person in that time period. That's what the war was all about. And uh, one of them came out the winner, yeah. as we've clearly seen. <laughs> Sega. Sure, sure. Uh, favorite part of this trailer? Every hero has a Genesis. That, that, that was a nice <laughs> little moment for, for all those people who love the Genesis so much. That was some console wars stuff, like just put right into that trailer. That that made me happy. Mm-hmm. But in general, I'm, I'm seeing the reactions to the trailers are, are mostly mocking. They're what? They're mocking. They're mocking the film. Why would no, they mock? No. Why would they because... mock the film? Because it looks stupid. Like, what? I mean, did you, you, you did not see how they designed the character? Oh my god, he looks awful. He looks great. Sonic is a great, no. timeless design, and he always. That, was... Then why did they fuck with it? I mean, like they obviously... reinvention is important to art. I don't know. They went too far. Like, at least with, you know, I think I, I see a lot of comparisons right now to Detective Pikachu. It seems like, you know, yeah. the Sonic team is kind of trying to. To go on that same route, but Detective Pikachu like looks like people actually care about what's going on there, and they're preserving the initial design still in this new rendering. But they just like they want to humanize Sonic too much. He looks awful. He he truly, truly does. And the memes are are going to flow. I just wonder where you've been since two thousand six. Sonic is having a relationship with female humans. He's he's a human, just in a yeah, skin. I, I, I prefer not to go to that dark part of the internet where all of the Sonic fan art is. A any other Sonic fans out there <laughs> listening, please just just stop. Please, it's some uh, of the most disturbing things I've accidentally come across. Just send it to at the Twin Geeks on Twitter and uh, follow us there for future. Um, we're going to break into fan fiction in a couple weeks, which we're awfully excited about. That, that's how we'll open the next podcast. We'll read some Sonic uh, dirty fan fiction, and that's going to be disturbing, and we'll lose all our followers from that point on. And when we say Sonic Team, of course, we don't mean like the classic Sega developers. We just mean like this Hollywood studio that took the rights to Sonic and made this uh, kind of grotesque, weird children's film. I love it because it's grotesque, though. Like it, it's it's playing right into those memes, and it's self-aware in a way that I'd usually be like, uh, 
fuck off, but uh, it seems likable to me. Like, I, I love the Paramount logo opening with the Sonic rings over the mountain. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to say, I'm doing a lot of shitting on it, but, like, I watched the trailer, mind you, half awake, like, so lying in bed this morning, but I was like, you know, I don't hate this. This is not the worst thing I've ever seen, like I thought it was going to be from that dreadful poster we first got. <laughs> it's not the Emoji movie. So, no, I feel like we have not. that working benefit, and uh, I like Jim Carrey's Robotnik, which I was uh, not expecting to. I was neither because Jim Carrey uh, has not been good lately no. for probably like ten years or so. Uh, he's been doing a lot of weird stuff, but now it looks like he's being regular Jim Carrey again, yeah. and it it seems to work. I like it, and I I definitely like it more than the Sonic in the film. So I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna cheer for this Robotnik, and it seems it seems kind of like an origin story. Like he doesn't look exactly like no. Robotnik does quite yet. Like it looks like a this is the beginning of that thing. Yeah, his and transformation really begins at the end of the trailer when he puts the goggles on. Right, he's he's shaved and he has the full mustache. He has to grow out a little bit of mustache. Robotnik's got a little clinger on both sides. That's it. Yeah, he has a pronounced mustache. Mm-hmm. And a pronounced belly, too. That's also missing from the character right now. Yeah, uh, I think we know, like, uh, with Kurt Russell's Santa, it's good for these old uh, classic characters of literature to become fit. Um, I feel like that's what they're doing with a, such a revered character as uh, Eggman. I can't wait to see um, bodybuilder Falstaff in the new Shakespeare adaptation. That'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I, I don't know, what's your history with the Sonic games? You know, I wasn't uh, as much a Sonic person, personally. I played a bit, but, you know, I'm I'm a loser, and I'm not good at hard video games, so there there's that. Um, I, I've always been pretty attached to them. I've played all of them except for these new Mania games, which are supposed to be some of the best, so I might be missing mm-hmm. out. Uh, it's not like I'm I hear that diehard of a Sonic fan. I just, I just have a lot of nostalgia built in. The way you talk about it, it definitely seems, you know, much more hardcore. More hardcore than anyone else here on the site, for sure. You are you are ecstatic about this new Sonic film, and that's, that's weird. Because on the reverse end, I was an ecstatic and, you know, person who played Pokemon a lot. But I'm not bouncing off the walls about Detective Pikachu. No. Not that I shouldn't be. I'm very excited for it. I'm just not uh, obsessing about it. No, I feel pretty calm about Detective Pikachu. All things told, I watched that and I felt fine. But uh, I watched this this morning, and I was, I was just grinning like an idiot. Mm-hmm. It, get, it took you back, I guess, even if it's not the Sonic that you, you kind of grew up with. He says he's gotta go fast. Yes. <laughs> what a fucking idiot. Okay. But but I'm assuming that, based on kind of how the trailer went and whatnot, there, there will be a Sonic universe kind of split off from here once we get going. I think the big concern with Sonic is always how many of his friends are featured. That's how you could tell what the quality will be. The number of friends mm-hmm. will be uh, uh, inversely proportional to how good the end product is. And there are no friends here. Uh, they did a good job not uh, bringing in all these um, fan servicey furry creatures. Although Sonic's really doing his part. Well, it's kind of weird because I, I like all of the Sonic cast members. I like them all and I like I mean, you games think where they're all there. You think you like all of them, but but there's there's so many weird ones like the like the Halloween bat. I don't I don't even know her name. Rogue, Rogue, Rogue the bat. Yeah, you're the Sonic fan. Why am I telling you this? Well, I'm pretty tired today too. But um, Rogue the bat has her. Remember, like Sonic Adventure, they had all the rap songs. I'd like some uh, I'd like some classic '90s rap songs reinserted into the film. 
Yeah, that that was a weird thing. Well, we had Gangster Paradise in the film. That was the, <laughs> that that was the song choice they went. I felt I guess they felt that was the most Sonic song they could choose. I guess it's it's same era. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it it's an interesting choice. Um, you know, I I appreciate their their bold you know idea there to go that way. I don't know if it's the best one, but <laughs> I, I mean, there's so many you could. You could just use Sonic music. There's so much iconic music wrapped up in yeah. the brand that I feel like the second trailer should be like um, uh, like that new Mortal Kombat trailer. Just use the original music. It's good as it was. Yeah, but I don't know. They're doing something weird this time. This whole thing, just like it's uh, not what you should do, I guess, or not what you'd expect. Or the, yeah. It just, <laughs> it just seems like they're extremely online and they're just like pulling into things that Twitter will really embrace. And I mean, you've got to hand it to them. It's going to get shared. Uh, it's trending it's, first on Twitter uh, all day today. So, mm-hmm. I got to say, it's, it, my prediction is that this will probably be the best worst thing of 2019. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I saw Al Yankovic uh, Twitter, uh, Twitter, what do you say, tweeted? He tweeted, tweet, he twittered he twatted, earlier, twat. twatted, and he said, I'm not sure how comfortable I am with them using a parody of Amish Paradise in the Sonic the Hedgehog trailer. A parody of Amish Well, it is kind of, it's weird because <laughs> that song is like three-tiered because it also comes from a Stevie Wonder song right. as well, that the, the rift is lifted from the chorus. Uh, anyway, it's all fantastic. Yes. It's it's going to be memed to death as we get closer to its release, and then from there, every still of the film, I'm sure, will be reincorporated into our internet culture in some way. So, Sonic's the big news of the week, but we have some smaller films to talk about at the box office. Yeah, uh, starting here at number 10, I'm kind of surprised this one climbed up here. Yeah. It's the the, the the Disney Nature Penguins film. Hmm. We talked about it like when it first came out, because you went and took your daughter to see it, but I wasn't expecting it to come up at all so i i made a mistake of giving her chocolates at the start of the movie so she got super hyped on uh on a little bit of sugar rush and yeah uh, that's a rookie mistake (laughs) well i think it was fun she started gawking and making penguin noises at the crowd next to us so we had to leave (laughs) did they give you weird stares i mean they did but at first they thought it was cute and then 20 minutes later they're like that's a little fucked up yeah, she's still going. Yeah, <laughs> she just wanted to run around anyway. It was her first time in a theater, so we, it was fun sitting there next to me. And she had a little penguin, stuffed penguin with her. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the movie itself, it's about a little penguin named Steve, like following his um, his journey. It was a uh, World Penguins Day last week, so maybe that uh, spurred some interest. We also found out that uh, one of the largest penguin colonies was a. Uh, um, has gone away, and so there's only one large uh, emperor penguin colony left. Well, that's really sad. I know. I know. I wonder, like, when Ezra's an adult, will they even be here? Probably not. Uh, Yeah, that's a scary thing to think about, is how much uh, kind of global, you know, climate change and all that stuff is going to affect environments, and we'll have to explain how long before rhinos don't exist, and we we have to explain... I I think about that now, and I'm like, that that wouldn't be a hard stretch. Like, nobody would believe us if we said rhinos were a thing. They're like, yeah, 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 I'm sure. Just like unicorns, you know? (laughs) There's no such thing as horned animals anymore. There won't be before long, because they only have purposes in the zoo for, like, human purpose. Why is it all the horned animals that are dying? Because we're losing, you know, like, elephant poaching that's causing a lot of issues, too. We just just let the guys with the horns go, guys. Yeah. Um, It's... 
I, I think you should go see them while, while they still exist in IMAX. Uh, that might be the way to go. There were there were so many other Penguin films for a while, like 10 years ago. Uh, maybe yeah, about 13 years ago. Penguin trend, but there's like Happy Feet and Surf's Up were like mm-hmm. right in the same time frame. We had March of the Penguins, which was a huge documentary. That was a, that was a huge thing. I don't yeah. even remember why. I know, but I went opening night at like Seattle's Egyptian Theater with like with like my high school girlfriend and it was like a it was a huge <laughs> thing for us and uh they, they released a sequel a couple of years ago on ulu that's pretty good so maybe watch those instead they're better what about uh mr popper's penguins bringing it back around to jim carrey i know i i love mr popper's penguins and i wish that movie were a lot better i, I love mr that's the, popper. that's the second time we brought it up on the podcast and i still don't have anything to say about it i mean we'll do a whole show on it eventually if you want to well maybe i'll eventually actually watch it anyway enough penguin talk for this week <laughs> at, at number nine uh, we have us no penguins here just rabbits lots of rabbits yeah we talked about it a lot we talked it to death and it's good go uh yep go support it or don't or not well, i guess it's okay it go see it for yourself yeah i mean jordan peele's making movies go support that yeah definitely uh whole podcast check that out couple back now anyway uh, number eight here, we have Pet Cemetery. More horror still sitting around in the box office. That's what we gotta do. We gotta bring the penguins back to life after they're gone. <laughs> we, we bury them in the, the McMack burying ground. Yeah. Penguins. I'm almost done with the book. You are. We, we talked about it several times here. I'm, I bet I'm so much closer than you are. I don't. I haven't heard you talk about reading it like at all. I read an entire hockey book this weekend, so I've been slacking. You you read an entire other book, but you haven't finished Pet Cemetery yet. <laughs> I'm about halfway through now, so uh, we'll keep we'll keep circling back to it. Yeah, maybe we'll finish it before the end of the year. Possibly. We have a review up on the site from Jesse, who did go and see it and has a and read the book, you know, by now. Yeah, it sounds like a middling take on. Uh, well, I don't think the original film's very good either. I just think they uh, it doesn't translate very well, and you need a really That's... talented director to do it. Yeah, that's the biggest thing I'm taking away reading the book, and I'm like, I don't even know how you would convey everything that's going on here in a compelling kind of film, because so much of it is all, you know, thoughts and feelings about things. It's not things happening as much. Yeah, I hate feeling things. <laughs> well, maybe eventually we'll get a proper adaptation, but in the meantime, Stephen King has given us plenty of other stuff that we're going to continue to adapt, even later on this year. Yeah. Uh, at number... Seven here, we have Little, which is the inverse of Big. Right. <laughs> like, literally, and also that's what it is. Yes. Uh, we've talked about it before. I don't think either of us have an inclination to see it no. and and don't have any more things to say. We can only make comparisons to Tom Hanks movies so many times. Anyway, at number six, moving on, we have Dumbo. Um, I watched some Tim Burton movies this weekend. Oh, that's right, you did. Like, some you hadn't even realized. You told me that you didn't remember that Sweeney Todd was a musical. I didn't know that about it, and it's an impressive musical. Yeah, I don't know how you didn't, because it was a musical before it was a Tim Burton movie. Like I a, think, a like, big, people big like famous us, musical. <laughs> people like us know so much about cinema that we forget more than people ever know, you know? Like, uh, there's so many things. I mean, just think, after all these years, since, like, 2007, of course you'd forget. I, I suppose, but Tim Burton is such, like, a seminal part of your, like, angsty teenager phase growing up that I don't know how you would skip over, especially something like Sweeney Todd, which which kind of embodies the, the hot topic aesthetic perfectly. 
Alan Rickman is pretty great in it too. So. He's he's pretty great in everything. I mean, you know? Alan Rickman is great. That's all there is to it. Yep, and I like him, even though he's he's kind of a smaller role. And actually, if you think about it, there's so many people in, especially now with uh, Johnny Depp being in Crimes of Grindelwald. Like Sweeney Todd is basically the cast members of Harry Potter in a musical. <laughs> it is, and uh, it's it seems to be based off uh, derived from uh, Umbrellas of Germ Bar. So that's why it's good. You think so? Yeah. I didn't go and see that one yet. I know it's on Criterion, yeah. but... Just just like La La Land. It's a throwback. <laughs> Lots, basically every musical comes from that one, it sounds like. Yeah. Anywho, you said you watched uh, another Tim Burton, though, right? Oh, yeah. Just uh, Beetlejuice. Yes. Don't say it two more times, though. Beetlejuice? No, 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 no. I don't want to hear it again, because then we got to deal with that guy. Okay. Uh, it's pretty good. Alec Baldwin's a lot of fun in it. I didn't remember that. Yeah. We talked about Alec Baldwin last week as well on Glen Gary, Glen Ross, and the, I think Beetlejuice... Oh, fuck. Oh, she's yeah, somewhere now. Geez. I said it a third time. Anyway, uh, Alec Baldwin, that's probably his best role there, uh, leading role anyway. Yeah. And Gina Davis is great in it, too. <laughs> what happened to her? I mean, um, we've, we've doubled up on Baldwin talk. I wish she had more roles in movies currently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone there kind of, except for uh, Michael Keaton's finally making a, a comeback with all yeah, these these great films lately, but doing Dumbo might have sullied his reputation more now. Uh, Dumbo's, Dumbo's fine. It's somewhere in the middle. Uh, there's there's not much to say about it still. Yeah, uh, another unnecessary Disney remake. We'll see another one later this month with Aladdin, then The Lion King after that. I'll just say about this that it, it may be the least unnecessary but it's still like on that on that um still on that spectrum of being unnecessary i think it has some commentary of what happened with burton when he got washed up with um doing too many corporate projects and how he lost his vision and it's kind of a commentary on that and against corporate mandates which is weird from disney uh within the same frame they bought fox Right. I think it's also kind of ironic that Burton started out as a disgruntled former Disney animator, and that's where his, all his kind of creativity and passion came from, and now he's a Disney corporate stooge. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he was, you know, he left Disney for certain reasons to go do his own thing, right? So. Yeah, but now he's back there, and he should leave Disney again, and maybe we'll get more good Tim Burton stuff. I just think he should stop. Just, uh, I think he's made all the movies that he has stuff to say about. And I think it's okay to be done. You're probably right. I think we just, you know, collectively, we, we're not ready for that. We we want to believe that inspired Tim Burton still exists, but I don't think so. I know, he didn't direct, right. I know he didn't direct it, but if he wanted to do Nightmare Before Christmas, if anyone's going to do it, that'd be okay. Let's, let's just not, though. Can we just leave that one alone as well? I know they're, they're talking about remaking James and the Giant Peach, I think I heard as well. Yeah, that would be hard well, too. Yeah, stop remaking things. Yeah, how about that? I haven't but, seen any good remakes in a while. No, make something new for once. Yes. Uh, speaking of new, I guess uh, number five here, Shazam. Well, not really new because we keep talking about it as another big remake. Right, <laughs> and it's been here for uh, weeks now. We're on our fourth week of Shazam. It's it sounds good. Bro has a review up. Yeah, uh, it's the most um, creative superhero film I've heard of in recently, even with the new ones for this week. I've still heard more uh, interesting takes on Shazam than I have any other superhero film of the past, like, five years. I'm excited it, it exists, but uh, 
I haven't had time for it. No, I'll probably... Maybe I'll see it if it comes out on Netflix or something eventually. Yeah. You know. But in the meantime, uh, we'll keep looking here at the box office, what's going on. Number four, we have Breakthrough, we which could... I, I already forgot what it is. Yeah, we can skip it. It's about the boy who drowns and then uh, religion brings him back. Oh, so. got it. We went over this last week. Uh, yeah. Don't buy into propaganda, folks. Number three, we have Curse of La Lorena. Uh, it's, I mean, all the Mexican folklore doesn't get very many interesting movies. Uh, they're all pretty typified and based on the same things. So it would be nicer to see them branch out, but obviously they could do well at box office. Yeah, uh, and this is another one, The Conjuring Universe, which I, I don't have much of a personal stake in, but <laughs> it's another example. Like, there's, what, three horror films in the box office here this week? It has been for a while. Um, yeah, at least three up here. So it's it's cool that we're getting them this time of year. I've always pushed to have them outside Halloween. So. Yeah, so it's nice we're getting a lot of that. It's a horror renaissance right now. Hopefully it keeps going. Yeah, we'll get most of our horror films actually outside the autumnal months this year, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. What else we got? Number two, we have uh, Captain Marvel, which jumped up a couple <laughs> places this week. Assumably yeah. for, uh, you know, in anticipation of Endgame coming out. Uh, Everyone's got to catch up. I never did actually end up finding out from you if there was any central plot points from Captain Marvel that were important to <laughs> Endgame. No, and, uh, no, it's just her introduction. Yeah, which ends up actually not meaning a whole lot. I mean, the cat has something in there that you, that you might want to look into, but I'd just look up the cat and see what he has to do. Well, it doesn't have any impact on Endgame as far as I know. So actually, we'll, we'll just get into that a little bit here. Because at number one, obviously, we have the record-breaking Avengers Endgame. You know. Uh. <laughs> I hear it's I, okay. I wish you had gotten out to see it so we could have a bit more of a conversation about it. But that's okay. Uh, I went and saw it yesterday. And it is good. <laughs> and that's that's my, you know... Feeling on it, it's it's definitely conclusive. It's a lot more character-focused than Infinity War was, which really had to kind of sideline a lot of that to get through the Infinity Stone adventure there. But it's not as well-constructed, I think, especially from a threat level. Like, all of the great things about Thanos in the first film don't exist in this one. I think it's cool that Disney got the rights to Back to the Future, and now they're making something new with it. <laughs> that, that is essentially kind of what's going on it's a time travel story and they go through a couple of important places in the Marvel Universe one of the weird things is that it's it's unfortunate that Thor the Dark World end up being the shittiest Marvel film because <laughs> yeah. we have to go back there because it's an important Marvel film and um, I don't know if I next week we should do a full on spoiler cast so we could kind of skirt around some of that here yeah um, we will you... I think that's the idea here is that You'll have seen it by then, and we'll want to talk about it, because there's lots to talk about in a three-hour superhero epic like this. I don't want to have to edit it. Do you think uh, you think the characters are far better in this one than uh, Infinity War, then? I think the, the characters are much better handled, mostly because of the events of Infinity War leave us with significantly less cast members, so it's easier to right. focus <laughs> on them. That That is to the film's benefit. It's a lot of other things that end up kind of holding back. It's a trade-off, essentially. You know, if, if someone told me uh, this was better than Infinity War, I'd say, yeah, I guess I could see it. But generally, I don't think as much. But it's up there still. It's not bad. It's definitely good. 
And it's worth seeing if you are ready for a kind of cathartic end to this giant saga. The biggest impression on me is that they didn't include end credits, which is kind of amazing to me. Yeah, so don't sit around in the theater for too long after you see it, guys. You're sitting around for nothing. Or maybe you do and reflect on how much time you spent watching 23 films back-to-back. <laughs> if you did do it back-to-back, I, I certainly couldn't. Um, There's that, some of those films <laughs> I can only see once, ever. I know, that's most uh, Marvel films for me. Do you feel like it has rewatchability? Potentially, yeah. I think I think less than Infinity War, like I said, but there's definitely a lot of fun things in it worth going through. You know, uh, I I might have even owning it. I have all the other Avengers films at least, so I mean, might, you as, might well as well complete that. Yeah. Uh, so we should say broke huge records at the box office, one billion globally, maybe two. We're looking Close. into two this week. That's a yeah. Lot. The weekend box office it says here was about. 350 million yeah domestically that's still a still a high record domestic but yeah insane insanely high but definitely you can see that the avengers have a, a entire global appeal oh yeah big in china so. mm-hmm. which is surprising i think because they don't like star wars at all i think but... there's so many opportunities with those characters to to deliver something to all cultures that i feel like that's that's a real intrinsic value it has Mm-hmm. And definitely, I think that's the case. I just think it's interesting because they don't like space stuff. Yeah, you know, right. China doesn't. But that's a lot of what these last Marvel films have been. It's a lot of space stuff now. They had some space stuff movie earlier this year, and I, I forget what it is, but I've been meaning oh, to get to it. I did hear about that one, that, that sci-fi movie thing. It looked uh, really great. It looked yes. high budget, and it's called The, the Wandering Earth. Yeah, that's what it was called. It, it looked really, really, great. really interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's Fine. their... That's China's first space stuff movie, so it should be okay. Yeah, one thing you'll never see though is China won't make a horror movie. They don't like ghosts. No, <laughs> they like like actively despise. Like they will they will not entertain the idea of ghosts. I I like Avengers in general, like a, at a at a very medium level. I feel like you're a little bit more passionate about it. Like I wouldn't own uh, any of the movies. A little. I'm I've I've enjoyed this journey for the past eleven years here. I remember going to see Iron Man in theater and it being a big deal and I remember you know, seeing the Avengers and that was a big deal as well. Like I enjoy the characters and I've enjoyed the ride, so this felt like a good inclusion, but I'm not like a huge Marvel fanboy who's been like hyped up for this. I was actually kind of like almost only going out of obligation to see Endgame. <laughs> I know, a couple weeks ago you had said you wouldn't go, so I was surprised that you had gone seen it already. But yeah, well, there was so much so much buzz going on about it. I was like, I don't want to miss out on being in the conversation, you know. Yeah. And I went to go see a new see in a new theater, so there was at least something out of it. It was a nice theater. That was something I had to. I used the bathroom twice during the theater, but they had <laughs> um, uh, speakers in the bathroom, so I didn't miss anything. And that was the greatest thing I've ever seen in the theater. Solving the Avengers problem. It's like when you go to a sports game, you want the you want the music pumped in. You should get headphones or something that go with you at the theater. Yeah, and because the thing is that I, I have a hard time sometimes with those longer films. That was the biggest thing. That three-hour runtime was scaring me away at first. But I didn't know that the theater had speakers till I got there. But you can bet if I ever have to watch a big film like that again, you know where I'm going. And it's nice because if you're in America and want to watch Avengers, it's your only option this week. Theaters aren't showing anything else. So, uh, yeah. You have plenty of opportunities to go see it. Mm-hmm. So I, I recommend it. I recommend people go out and see it. 
So maybe then we can put this superhero genre to bed for a while. Huh. <laughs> yeah, right as it tops two billion this week. <laughs> I sure think that's they, it, though. I'm sure they won't make more based on that, right? <laughs> I'm not saying they won't make more, but I'm saying attendance is gonna like drop. It's gonna go off a cliff. I'm just saying. Nobody's... I keep... I keep hearing about Thor and these Guardians, and I'm pretty That's, excited. Yeah, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything about that, but there okay. there is at least a promising aspect of it, and having James Gunn back on board with the Guardians makes me feel more secure if that's where things go. I feel like I'll Thor's been going into that kind of like uh, semi-comedy anyway, and that the Rousseau's are just making an extended version of Community in some sense. So that makes sense that it would go into that... Uh, as sitcom community territory eventually. Man, I really wish Abed was an Avenger. That yeah. would be hilarious. <laughs> Why not? They they should just give him a series. There there's our movie, our sixth season in a movie there is an Avengers film. I it would work. Community community could totally do it. Yeah. I'd be happy with it. I'd be happy with uh, just bringing another season of community on and you know, maybe maybe making that the like, oh it's a Avenger season. Maybe I don't know. It, it it didn't work out too well for the last two seasons there, and and Dan's probably pretty busy with uh those like hundred episodes of Rick and Morty they're commissioned to make now. So, <laughs> oh, what a waste! Yeah, waste. No, Rick and Morty's pretty great still. It's just a fan base that sucks. At least the Avengers fans aren't very bad uh, in general no, for having thank, so many of them. Thank God the Avengers fans aren't like Star Wars fans. Those are the real toxic fan base right now. So, yeah, I, don't, I think uh, we'll save most of the Avengers talk, though, for next week. <laughs> We're getting a little off topic. Uh, instead, great movie. <laughs> I'm going to leave it there. Um, in the meantime, let's talk about our film of the week here. We decided to talk about another film from the 90s after last week with Glenn Gary, but a little bit earlier, talking about the, the immortal classic from Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas. Go get your fucking shine box. <laughs> People looked at me differently, and they knew I was with somebody. I didn't have to wait in line at the bakery on Sunday mornings anymore for fresh bread. The owner knew who I was with, and he'd come from around the counter. No matter how many people were waiting, I was taken care of first. Our neighbors didn't park in our driveway anymore, even though we didn't have a car. I mean, at 13, I was making more money than most of the grown-ups in the neighborhood. I mean, I had more money than I could spend. I had it all. One day, one day some of the kids from the neighborhood carried my mother's groceries all the way home. You know why? It was out of respect. Hi, Mom, what do you think? Look at my shoes, aren't they great? My God, you look like a gangster. They stop me out! Oh, they stop me! It's, it's hard to, I think, approach this film in some way because its reputation almost precedes itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we just sat down and both watched this together here, but still I find myself kind of in awe of the film and how technically great it is, how uh, captivating it is, but also how, you know, uh, it's it's it never, I feel like, goes into the territory of glamorizing things too much. No, I think it's, I think it's a nicely... Uh measured especially for uh scorsese's good at measuring that kind of thing and placing it in a way that it feels um 
it's very it's very easy to be receptive of his stories. Mm-hmm. I think the uh, definitely the big thing I find was interesting with it is that um, Goodfellas is designed to be glamorous intentionally, like those those kind of opening shots with young Henry Hill kind of looking out. It's very warmly lit and everything as he's staring out. It like everything is shot to make the gangster lifestyle look so appealing. Yeah. But again, like I said, it never falls into that territory of kind of justifying it. Uh, we talked a little bit and said how it's kind of amazing that Scorsese took the same formula of this kind of biopic with a heavy amount of voiceover taking us through this glamorous lifestyle that he did in Goodfellas here and kind of patented. And he used it again, like almost exactly, for Wolf of Wall Street and got away with it. Like, it doesn't feel like an imitation. But the big difference between the two is that Wolf of Wall Street definitely overindulges and yeah. does not make like like you don't feel like there's any proper repercussions for anything that happened in Wolf of Wall Street here and they're like wow they got away with all that shit <laughs> like yeah the the end is sometimes they get away and yeah. it, it's structured exactly the same but it tells a different story which uh, I feel like you could just keep doing I feel like if Scorsese wanted to he could just have a career of doing that but I think he's too good and would get bored yeah no the, he's definitely not all about that, and has made all sorts of different biopics in different ways. But, um, like I said, with how Goodfellas kind of does that differently is that everything you hear from Henry Hill kind of makes, you know, you, you hear how he's indulging and enjoying it, but what we see doesn't translate to that exactly. It's a juxtaposition. The violence and, like, like terrible things in the film, it's all presented objectively for us to judge. And there, there's no question about how horrifying it all is. Yeah, it's it's about a this Lucci's crime family and this guy Henry who goes in on it as a young kid and kind of how it, he's brought up into it and how he's sort of Breaking Bad for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know it takes from that like those those moments in childhood where it kind of goes up from you know the short time span where he's learning the ropes and everything and kind of getting his first few busts and all that to his adulthood where he eventually has his full on. You know, it's a total rags-to-riches kind of story, and then fall from grace afterwards. And a really fantastic example of that. Probably, like, a definitive example, if I had to pick any. I would say Goodfellas is kind of the one up and, there also. Uh, I think what we, we arrived to is that it may be our favorite mob movie shared between us. So. Yep, I, I definitely agree. Um, we, we've talked about it before. We've talked about it with many other members of the chat. Most people, most, you know, film... Fanatics will tell you that The Godfather is the best gangster film, but we're going to have, have the hot take here and say that Goodfellas is the superior film. Not only more watchable, but all, but actively better as well. I'm not saying that Godfather is not better at showing parts of the family and the lifestyle. I just think this is a better film. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. And we have uh, Roger Ebert to back us up. We got a quote from him that says exactly say? the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't... And, you know, I lost the quote now. I gotta find it again. Shit. I'll cut this bit out. I'm leaving a note to do that now. There, there, I found it. I got right. page. My what do you have to say? <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see here. So, Roger Ebert is quoted saying in his initial review from September second, nineteen ninety. No finer film has ever been made about the about organized crime. Not even The Godfather. Although the two works are not totally, not really comparable, he says. Which is true. Yeah. Very, very different films. I mean, they're not comparable because Goodfellas is a better film. <laughs> well, it's not even just that. It's also uh, just the idea that 
Um, Goodfellas is so much more about the actual intricacies and practices of the mob, where it's um, the Godfather is much more the kind of epic portrait of it, and it's supposed to be more enticing. Like, you don't condemn what's going on in The Godfather so much, you buy it as almost this operatic level of gangster storytelling. Yeah, I mean, if if uh, if Goodfellas is a bi- biopic, then uh, Godfather's probably um, a story about the whole crime family. Uh, if it's, so so here's, yeah. here's our weekly uh, call-out for how you weirdly pronounce things. Did you say biopic? Yeah, how do you say it? it? Biopic. Bio... Pick like pick is pick is the word there for picture and bio yeah. is biography. Biopic. You're putting like the emphasis of the p in the beginning part. Biop like like you're separating it like it's biop and ick. It's weird. <laughs> I don't understand. Like a, bio- <laughs> like a biography. But yeah, bio from biography and pick from picture. Bio pick. Glad we got that settled. <laughs> <laughs> I I uh, I had just watched uh, Goodfellas only a few days ago. I, I went out to a family cabin and I was like, man, we got to do this. We haven't even covered Scorsese yet. No, I I think we were holding on to a lot of Scorsese for um, have, yeah. the, the Irishman essentially at the, the end of this year, where I'm sure we're gonna do a whole breakdown of his filmography. I've watched like the uh, probably only three films I think I haven't seen of Scorsese's yet, even like the and, and out of all of them. Only one film has been actively bad. God, I don't know if I if I've missed any. There, uh, I think there are a couple like uh, New York, New York that I haven't seen. Uh, that's one I haven't seen. I've seen New York, New York. I haven't seen um, uh, Alice. Uh, doesn't appear anymore, which I own. I own it. It's I have good. it sitting on my shelf. I just haven't watched it. I, I've been meaning to. And there was another one which I can't remember off the top of my head, but I've seen generally everything, even like the really deeper cuts, like the you know who's that knocking on my door, Boxcar Bertha, Bringing Out the Dead. You've even seen after uh, hours. You've seen Silence, right? Yes, Silence was really great. I went and saw it in the theater. Oh yeah, that. yeah. Anyway, um, uh, coming back to Goodfellas, though, um, one thing I want to point out is I think like the one of the greatest things about it is that the cinematography is so fantastic and, and expert in it. Like, it's really used to convey whatever's going on in the scene. Some of them, especially like, you know, everyone talks about the famous Copacabana shot, but the reason why it works, and similar shots to that throughout the film, is because it's this floating feeling through it all. Like, you're being, um, you know, just kind of brought along on this journey through it. It's very elegant. It's very dreamlike, almost. And I found the Copa this time to be especially the embodiment of everything that they've ever hoped for. Like that's the, that's like the whole station of the mob and what they designed their family around. Uh, when he shows up to the date, um, they pull up a table for him. Not only does he not need reservations, but they're going to make a space for him. Well, that's that whole thing. And actually, I think it's one of those funny things where there's, uh, you know, it's a, one of those cases where that was the creation of the Copacabana sequence was out of a necessity and not like designed from the start. The, the actual place, they wouldn't let them go in through the front entrance. They didn't want them filming through that way. So they didn't have any choice, but to go around the back way. But what that does is that it it opens up the idea that, you know, it's much more of a back way. Like, like, you know, they're, it's, it's a different world they're going through. Essentially they're going through the, the CD entrance, the back way, but the way through it is a lot more interesting and new and exciting. Everyone through there knows Henry. They all smile at him. They give him a pat on the back or shake his hand, and he pays them all. He gives them all money, and it's just we're in the same position as Karen is going through that situation, and we live that moment with her. And it's such a funny first date because it's all about him. It's his embodiment. He's throwing out like twenty dollar bills. She's like, "Do you really want to do that?" Then uh, 
Then they have a comedian that comes on talking about how uh, uh, hating your wife, which is yep. like you say, a whole style of comedy. It is kind of like that's a that's a whole subgenre of comedy. Is just you know, my wife sucks like, jokes. Like take the, my wife, please. Andrew Dice Clay School of uh, Hey, you're a piggy, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's many fantastic moments of cinematography throughout. You know, lots of you know good tracking shots like that. I remember there's there's a whole variety of it. Um, you know, we talk about the ending a lot too, which has this very frenetic cinematography to it, and the editing is very careful and calculated to to convey this sense of paranoia. There's some repeated shots kind of thrown in really quickly like that. You know, rapid cuts and it. Um, puts us, again, like it does with the other characters, puts us in Henry's shoes in that case where he's, you know, really, you know, tripped out on the drugs, you know, from all the coke that he's doing at that time. And it's really the end of his life, essentially. That's that's the end of his time as a monster. And like you say about uh, The Wolf of Wall Street, it even follows, like, on that cue. It even goes into the drug story at the same point in the story. So uh, I think what, what Scorsese sound is, found is a powerful story about people in power and their major common downfalls. Yeah, and uh, I think there's a certain credibility Scorsese has here, you know, not only from the actual drug aspect, which he very, you know, famously struggled with during the 80s or the, the mm-hmm. 70s up until then, but um, also the the actual kind of mobster life. He took a lot of that influence prior with uh, Mean Streets and made a fantastic gangster film there as well. So he knows that, and especially the the familial aspect of it, which is a very, very strong aspect, like The Godfather, here in Goodfellas, that kind of Italian heritage that goes with the mob life there. Yeah, and I feel like it is very Italian, because he understands that Italian-Jewish upbringing, and he, like in Mean Streets, like at his premiere, you, you already get it. Scorsese knows these people. He grew up in, uh, in at least these systems, not necessarily a mobster, but around them. Yeah, no, and he he definitely at least had that close relation. If he was not, you know, a a mobster himself, you know, he understood what was going on there and witnessed it. But like I said, that that familiar aspect is such an important facet of it. One mm-hmm. of the one of the best scenes of it is, you know, when they sit down, they have, uh, you know, the guy they stabbed Billy Bats in the trunk of the car, but they're having a conversation around the dining room table there. <laughs> With with Scorsese's mom, who's in the picture, it's a nice scene that they bring up. It's a, it's a funny sequence too. Um, there's a lot of good comedy. I think that's an important facet. I, I'm sure I've said this before, but any good serious film still needs moments of comedy. Comedy is an essential part of life, and if you try and rob it of that, it's just going to be a miserable experience. You need even, some levity. <laughs> even the comedy in this has a lot of tension. Like the guy who comes up on stage isn't funny, but the guys who are just mobsters and uh, you know sharing old. Joe Pesci's stories about getting angry at people. That's the that's the version of comedy in this film. That's a funny, yeah, that's a funny bit as well. The whole the famous thing, funny how. That's a a good sequence <laughs> in it, but it it turns from comedy to to terror like very yeah. quickly. In it. And <laughs> and same thing kind of later with Joe Pesci's character in the sequence with uh, Spider Rico, where he's he's talking about making a dance, you know, and he shoots around the floor. But, you know, when that kind of turns around, when, when, when Spider-Rico mouths off back to him, he says, go fuck yourself, Tommy. And everyone's laughing about it. And, you know, De Niro's character, you know, he's like, oh, I'm throwing money for Spider here. And then he just, Tommy just fucking shoots the hell out of him. And it's and it just like the, the moment cuts like any humor just dies with the gunshots. I mean, they're, they're pretty, you know, they're all wise guys. They're all, uh, they're the quintessential wise guys. They're wise cracking. They're funny. But, uh, yeah, you don't want to tell them they're funny. 
Right. Oh, and that's the that's the interesting, thing, especially that that ho funny house story. I think right. I told you that that's a that's a real story. That's not actually unlike everything else in the film, which is essentially what you know is from uh, you know Henry Hill's actually story, his life story. That funny house sequence is a real one from. Uh, Joe Pesci, who, you know, grew up around in the same kind of scenarios, Scorsese, or like kind of around or relating to monsters, and that's, there's a real story he had with him where the guy was messing with him by, you know, like, indicating he was going to do something. Like, how am I funny? You're making fun of me? you going to fuck with me, man? He's like, I'm funny, how? Funny like a mm -hmm. clown? I amuse you? He, he's so good. Yeah, it's a great sequence, and, you know, uh, Joe Pesci rightfully won an Oscar for this role here. Because he does such a fantastic job, he's he's got that perfect like explosive anger quality about him, and I think he basically got typecasted from here on out. I don't know if Joe Pesci could even do anything else. We'll see. No. We'll see how he does in The Irishman. Because that's the that's the cool thing about it is that we're assembling the team back here again, except for Ray Liotta. This is I think I said this before. Ray Liotta is like this is his only good film role. Yeah, he doesn't need more work. I I remember enjoying him in. Uh, Jonathan Demay's something wild a long yeah. time ago, but like that the film in general like it wasn't worth it. But um, this is like the the one thing he works really well in the film. He's he's the central part of it, and his voiceover is fantastic. Probably one of the best voiceovers ever in any film. It like it, it carries the story and it's full of detail and realness. Like it doesn't feel like it's just spouting exposition or information at you. It feels like it, you're really getting insight into this character. It'll be fun like. 29 what 30 years later we'll be getting these characters all over again in the in the irishman so it's a fun lead up yeah. for us to talk about it is it's actually a uh, 30 years next year will be the anniversary of goodfellas and that's cool yeah yeah we should we should circle back for an article but uh, i'm glad we're doing it now yeah no because i love goodfellas uh, other thing it has over the godfather and other films is that it's insanely rewatchable because yeah. of that that kind of glamorous enticing aspect of it you know, and it's just easy to put on. Even though it's a two and a half hour movie, it's long. <laughs> it is. We have but to take it doesn't, a break midway through. Yeah, but. It doesn't feel long necessarily. It just moves by. It's got great pacing. It's broken up into, you know, easily digestible sections and, and everything moves forward. Like we talked about this in one example. Um, when they're sitting outside the bamboo lounge, they're having a conversation about uh, girlfriends, essentially. And they're like, like, I gotta take this girl out for whatever. And I said, this dialogue is very. Tarantino-like, it reminds me of the lead-up in Pulp Fiction, the, the foot massage talk, essentially. The difference is, is that this conversation at Goodfellas actually has effect on the plot later. It's an important piece of information that we're getting a couple scenes ahead of time, whereas the foot massage thing is just character. It's still good stuff, but it's not uh, as, as crucial what's going on. It's a much better example, I think, here in Goodfellas of how that kind of character writing can be beneficial to the story. It works for me, too, because uh, the characters are still concise. They always say stuff that moves their character. And even characters like Polly, you know, he's not even going to talk or look at you half the time. Yeah, and he's a very uh, kind of, you know, closed-off character, but that's the part of his character. It's an essential part of it. And everything he says has significant weight because of how little he says. Yeah, right. Uh, and then you just get to see him chopping the garlic, and, and that means something, and everything will mean something because he doesn't do very much. The, those small details like that, like something like how he chops the garlic, it adds more authentic nature. Like I said, it's in the voiceover as well. Everything you kind of hear or see in the film, it all adds that extra layer of authenticity. You didn't need this film to be uh, based on a true story, but it, it lends all that aspects to it. Like, I 
I, I hear all those things and I see these small, intricate, insignificant details and I'm like, of course that's real. Of course that's how it happens. Like nobody, nobody would make up something as insignificant as, you know, slicing slivers of garlic with a razor blade. Right. Yeah, he's cutting it like he's preparing coke. It's it's the same kind of, uh, the same kind of, uh, what would you call it? The same ritualistic behavior as like a drug user, but for yeah. food. It's kind of interesting because, again, coming back to that familial aspect, the food is such an essential part of the Italian lifestyle. And you here, know, too, especially, they, they put a huge emphasis on the on the dinner scenes, and that's where a lot of the good exposition ends up happening. One of the final things he says, you know, as, as he's kind of dealing with begrudgingly the suburban life, is that he can't even get a good meal. Was he say something <laughs> like, I ordered spaghetti and meatballs, and I got... You know, packaged noodles and tomato sauce. Right. <laughs> or yeah. egg noodles, as places. Egg noodles and tomato sauce. I mean, uh, food is, to the Italians, you know, I- extremely uh, fundamental to their cultures. It, it makes sense that they base that on, um, you know, their livelihood is as good as their food. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting note that it leaves it on as well, because it's this idea that uh, you know, almost, especially with the, the ending shot with the door closing and you hear, like, prison bars closing, like, it's the idea that leaves it on, is that the idea of suburban life is a worse fate for Henry Hill than jail ever was, which makes for, <laughs> right. it makes for a good juxtaposition earlier, because they have that long sequence where they're like, yeah, we're in jail for, like, two years or so, but it's not, like, real jail, it's not jail in the movies, like, no. they, they all have, like, this compound, they all hang out in together, they smuggle good food in. That's where the, the the garlic cutting scene comes from. Yeah, they're all sitting there with their Pepsis and their you know all their snack food, and his wife's smuggling in some drugs. Uh, you can get anything, like he says. Uh, you only go away if you want to. Right. Yeah, and you're bribe. They're bribing the guards the whole time, just like they were on the outside for everything. Right. They got <laughs> enough money to go around and do anything. Like that's. I think that was the interesting going around and seeing, especially a character like Tommy who will just act belligerent because he can to to feel that invincible as a person that you could just not pay for things and then kick the owner the you know the head or something like that and get away with it i can't imagine feeling ever that invincible no it's it's a strange thing that uh that scorsese likes to explore about men in powerful positions that he's uh, so, he's good at exploring that kind of male toxicity yeah, I mean, certainly there's a, generally a lot of his films have that, that aspect of it, of, of power is a certain thing, and, you know, what what men do, not to say that there isn't women, like I said, I mean, I need to get to Alice. As there there now, are, there are always supportive characters, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, he's not afraid to tackle, I mean, Scorsese's done such a variety of films, he did a film about the Dalai Lama, for God's sake, yeah. you know, how was that, anything like it, Scorsese is a... A very, you know, a, a, uh, he has an eclectic, you know, taste of things he can cover. Very, um... And I don't think you get to ask him what to make because he made Goodfellas. So that's kind of like, a, you, you just let him do what he wants. Well, I think one of our other things that we were still surprised to say at the end of it, we're like, this film is essentially perfect. It's the best <laughs> mobster film ever made. It's amazing in every way. And it's not even his best film. No, I mean, uh, we... We could bring all of that in, and we still have, um, I think, Raging Bull for both of us, because, I mean, it's in my top three films of anyone. Mm-hmm. It's, it floats around sometimes into my top ten or not. It's, you know, it kind of comes in depending on it, but it's always an amazing film. Again, that, that perfect look at, you know, male uh, 
you know, uh, masculine toxicity and all that. Um, and it, it, it's a better performance, I think, from De Niro, though he is absolutely yeah. fantastic here. It's Jimmy Conway. He's, he's very charismatic. This was, this was like the height of De Niro's acting power, I think, still. Yeah, we also got two good De Niro's the last couple of weeks. That's Did been we? fun. What? Didn't we? What else was De Niro in that we talked about? Oh, no, no, that was Pacino, wasn't it? I'll cut it. Yeah, Pacino, no. But uh, Pacino actually was, at one point, uh, he was asked to play the Jimmy Conway part, but he turned it down, uh, ironically, then instead playing a bigger kind of farce gangster in Dick Tracy. Oh, yeah, yeah, and I don't know, I, I think you'd prefer to be in this, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, this is the, the much better role. Though Dick Tracy, his role in is much, you know, is, is very fun. And Dick Tracy is a very interesting film as well, I think. Yeah, don't you think you'd rather be in uh, The Goodfellas? Yeah, Goodfellas is definitely the, the better film and probably the more, uh, definitely the meatier role for certain. I don't know why he turned that down in favor of Dick Tracy. But I guess Dick Tracy was the, the kind of blockbuster film of 1990 to go with, especially with Warren Beatty's name attached and a big property name like Dick Tracy. Oh, one of the things watching it twice in the last week has encouraged for me. I want to do the, uh, I want to do a gangster canon and look at some of the influential gangster films. Yeah, you gotta go back all the way. You gotta look at some of those, uh, like Scarface, the original Scarface from uh, Hawks and Howard Hughes, and like uh, Little Caesar with Edward G. Robinson, and a bunch of those ones. White Heat as well, I think. Yeah. It would be fun to look back and not especially just do noir, but look at the, the major gangster films. Yeah, there's a lot of them in the 30s, but again, we had kind of those resurgence. Mean Streets, definitely one that qualifies. Scorsese, you know, he's big on those and all that. Gangster films definitely are a genre worth exploring, but the highlights, I definitely, I think the, the, the king of them still has to be Goodfellas. And we, we kind of came around to nobody's really done anything so significant since 1990. Which is a shame. We have Sopranos so? that kind of copied a lot of the same traits as uh, Goodfellas and Godfather, but uh, Sopranos is kind of like a warship of those movies. It's not Sopranos exactly its own. Yeah, it's it's basically the last, um, you know, big gangster kind of property there. Since then, what you had like Public Enemies in 2013 from Michael Mann, but that yeah, wasn't that right. wasn't like yeah. It's not this Goodfellas. Like I said, it's the it's the testament. It's the final word on gangster films uh oh shit you know what we didn't even mention this whole time we didn't mention how fantastic the fucking soundtrack is in there's Goodfellas. so many good cuts and they fit in perfectly it's the thing it's not just like it's a good soundtrack like you know you got like your guardians of the galaxy or, or yeah. whatnot <laughs> that's just good music like it's it's perfectly selected music uh you know one of the three it, it opens up you know, with the title sequence, you know, he says the famous as far back, because I can remember I always wanted to be a gangster, and cut to the song, you know, Rags to Riches, it's this, you know, great embodiment of what's, you know, happening, what's going on here. I mean, uh, and Scorsese always knows how to drop Rolling Stones in there, or I think we were both a little bit impacted when he got the Eric Clapton back-to-back. Oh, yes, so there's a, that great moment where, and it reminds me a lot of the scene in Mean Streets, because there's the, the introduction of Robert De Niro's character in Mean Streets comes with Jumpin' Jack Flash like that, but the shot is framed the same here when he brings in Sunshine of Your Love, shooting in on De Niro there, you know, like a scene or two before the famous uh, kind of murder montage set to the, the beautiful, the achingly beautiful piano interlude from Layla. 
and yeah, Layla is a perfect song. There's there's no way to misuse that song, but just the way it's inserted uh, overpowers uh, any other of the song track choices, I think. I think, I guess just on a kind of Clapton tangent here, I just want to talk a little bit about Layla because I think it's such a fantastic and, you know, very uh, interesting song to look at because uh, it's essentially two songs kind of put together that kind of very easily move with each other. You don't hear the... The first part is much in things. You definitely hear that famous piano interlude way more. But then on top of that, you also have that famous, beautiful, unplugged version of Layla that you see a lot of, which yeah. is, like, equally as good. Like, if you right. ask me to pick between the two versions, I'm like, I can't do it. They're both absolutely phenomenal. They're both necessary, and I think that uh, Clapton is a good choice. He has a little bit of, like, Clapton and blues uh, big blues influence yeah. yeah same thing with the rolling stones you get that blues rock influence with them there and it fits perfectly in here there's this really interesting combination of a lot of bluesier you know rock musicians in goodfellas as well as a lot of kind of jazzier you know styles at the same time going throughout that's the main types of music you're drawing from here in goodfellas and a lot of it's perfectly implemented use a lot of it to convey the time period of certain sequences going on here but also the emotions of what's going on. The the Copacabana one's another great one where it's got the you know then he kissed me kind of going through that. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's so cool because he he knows Rolling Stones also. Like I mean, uh, uh, you know, Give Me Shelter's using like Goodfellas because he has and Departed. He he loves coming back to them and even made his own little film about them, didn't he? Yeah, he did a, a concert documentary. Uh, Shine Shine a Light. I That's watched that was, one actually. Yeah. I remember watching that one. It was a pretty good one. But he does. He, he uses the Rolling Stones in most everything. And this, in this case, it's... um. I don't think it was... I'm trying to remember which one it was now. It's, we not, did have, it's not... We, we did have Give it, Me Shelter in this one. Did we? I thought that was just The Departed, but it might be. He likes Give Me Shelter a lot. I know that. Yeah. That's in this one. Um, I, I, I feel like there's another one in here, but I can't remember. So, yeah, I think... Just in general, it's really hard to summarize what is so great about Goodfellas in, in its entirety because there's so many great things going on here, so wonderfully made and almost inexplicable in some ways. It's just such a joyous film to watch, but also so sophisticated in its execution. It's good because you feel like you're a part of the family for about uh, two and a half hours, which is a special thing that I don't right, think but... Godfather ever achieves a uh, completely. The Godfather definitely feels like more of you're witnessing this epic tale going on, whereas Goodfellas, you're very much brought in to it. But the important thing I think that Goodfellas also again maintains is that you're always kept at an arm's length. You're never allowed to sympathize really with the characters too much. You're not on their side at any point in the film. You're just along for the ride and watching as this kind of unfolds and understanding why they're doing what they're doing. You know, yeah. but also seeing the repercussions of it and why you shouldn't it's want in, envy them. It's inclusive in a way that others are not, that you're floating through scenes with the characters and you're literally put into their uh, scenarios and their situations and you find out what their um, section in New York means to them and what their family means to them. Yep, it's a very, very careful line that's being walked of not being too indulgent in the material here which uh, is an amazing accomplishment all on its own. I think the only downside you could say is that it does indulge in the second half. I could see where people would fall off, but I don't at all. Yeah, well, I think the issue, the, the thing with the second half is that it's not as glamorous, intentionally so, 
because that's the downfall aspect of the film. That's where, you know, Henry Hill is fallen deep into his drug habit and is, you know, completely lost sight of what's important and what keeps him afloat. And that's when he gets caught and he's done for. And so, of course, that's not the more enjoyable, you know, part of the film. It's not the, the glamorized part that we started with, but it's not meant to be. It's intentionally supposed to be like that. I mean, it's objectively not uh, not the same kind of film that the, that the film is in the beginning. It goes some other places. Right, because it's how the story goes. And it's an important ending to have there, again, that condemnation of the lifestyle is that important aspect that Goodfellas nails perfectly that Scorsese didn't quite get as well in Wolf of Wall Street. Mm-hmm. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, it's it's flawless as far as I'm concerned. I have no issues at all. It's an amazing accomplishment of a film to me. And like I said, Selva, that's it's a testament to Scorsese as a filmmaker that I don't even think it's his best film. <laughs> yeah, his flawless film is, may only be his third or fourth best, which is, uh, that's what kind of director he is. That's all right. Yep, it's an amazing, amazing film, and I can't wait to talk more about Scorsese stuff in the future. He's He is actually one of my favorite filmmakers for yeah. obvious reasons. I think he may be my favorite director, so uh, I'm, I'm always excited to talk about him. Yeah, well, we definitely will have plenty to talk about. Uh, maybe more films of his as we come closer to Irishmen later this year, but definitely once we get to Irishmen, and uh, I'm excited to do a you know, a Scorsese ranking. I know. I, I wanted to get into it several times here, but I feel like it's best held for uh, Irishmen where our, our whole site could kind of weigh in. Yep. I already have a list kind of drafted up, but, you know, we'll get into that as we come. Uh, I don't know. Maybe we'll pick another Scorsese film in the future. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Dave. See you, man. Wait.